Hi, I'm Winnie Da Silva. As a leadership strategist and executive coach, I've had the privilege of working with leaders from companies of all sizes and industries for over 20 years. Welcome to Transformative Leadership Conversations. I had never managed anyone. In fact, I was afraid to talk to a group of people that was more than five. And so everything I learned about running a company, I had to learn on the job. I've realized that often the hurdles you personally have, just things in your own mind. I was quite insecure. When you talk to VCs, they're like, oh, who's managing this? Do you have professional management? And of course, I, yeah, I had no management experience. I hadn't gone to business school. A lot of the hurdles you have in life or the blocks, you put them there yourself. When I started the company, I was insecure about my abilities to manage. It's the same thing. It was just in my head. When we have uh, challenging times, it's a good opportunity. We question everything. In fact, not only do I question everything, everyone in the organization questions everything. Everyone in the organization is, is willing to change. My guest today is an entrepreneur who in 2001 launched Tribal Fusion, the first business under Exponential Interactive, and who most recently launched VDX TV. As a single founder, he wrote the software that underpins their advertising technology and then led the company through their global expansion, as well as the constant evolution of their products to match the rapid changes in consumer technology and media consumption habits. It's also worth mentioning that my guest today is also my brother-in-law. Dilip De Silva, thank you for being on my show. Oh, you're welcome. Dilip, I'm looking forward to talking with you about two things in particular. First, your experience in building a company from scratch, without any outside funding into a company that has continually adapted and thrived for over 20 years. I think that's really an accomplishment. So congratulations. And then second, I want to hear about some of your most recent leadership challenges as you've continued to lead Exponential Interactive during one of the worst economic downturns in our lifetime. So before we start on all that, I thought it'd be helpful, just in layman's term, what does Exponential Interactive what do, what do you do and how do these different pieces fit together? Exponential is in the digital advertising space. And we've had a long evolution going down different paths with digital advertising, starting on desktop, then going to mobile, then doing in-stream. And latest uh, solution, which is called VDX.TV, is video-driven experience. We help brands connect with consumers, and they do that through video on the television, on their mobile devices, on desktop. And we create the same experience. And digital advertising, one of the advantages is you can reach uh, the people most relevant to a brand. The other thing is we can change the video or change the messaging around the video so it's more relevant to consumers. And in this time with COVID, consumers are looking to brands to connect with them and they want to feel that brands are there for them and their communities. And so we can make the, the advertising much more relevant. So it feels like they're talking to consumers in a particular location. And the, and the third part is interactivity. And this just establishes a much stronger bond with consumers. Consumption habits have changed People used to all watch television, and now they're not all watching together. Some people are in their own rooms watching on their own mobile devices or desktop. And so that's what we help the brand solve. I'm curious, do you feel since COVID-19 has taken over, how has advertising changed? Oh, I think people leading marketing for brands are very aware of what's going on in society. They know they need to connect 
uh, with consumers in a different way based on what people are going through with the pandemic, but also what people are going through with the Black Lives Matter and social justice. And they definitely are very conscious that they need to be thinking differently. And many of them are changing their messaging. We've also adapted our solution to help brands do that. Why did you decide to become an entrepreneur? What was the driving force for you when you first started this company over 20 years ago? I think two personal qualities that led me down this direction. One is I have a hard time working for other people. And I think the other is my background is software and I love building software. I love building stuff. And I always come up with ideas and think, oh, I could build it. And that's how I, I got into building some software and wanting to do it on my own and thinking I could build a company doing that. I've since realized that the building part and the designing and the idea stuff is only five percent of <laughs> what it really takes to build a company there's a lot of grind and making sure a company can survive and thrive but that's one of the most interesting parts that I, I now find all the parts interesting and so that's how i got into it i'm encouraged that you are enjoying most of it what was it like building exponential interactive without outside funding and why did you decide to go that route yeah so that that wasn't intentional i thought i could start out with building the software. And this was around the dot-com bust when the internet was a big thing. I worked for another company in the advertising space. I actually built the bulk of their software. They went public. They became a pretty large company. But as I said, I, I'm not very good at working for other people. And I didn't see that they were inclined to include me as part of the leadership team. So I was like, I'll go do something else. I can use my talents elsewhere. But I didn't think I would get into advertising. But then I was thinking again about the space and I had a unique idea. And at that time, a lot of founders, entrepreneurs, they would come up with some idea and VCs were just throwing money at them. And I thought, okay, I'll build the whole thing myself. And so I started uh, writing the software, but unfortunately it took me longer than I had uh, initially thought. It took me about two and a half uh, years. I was alone. I built it all. I then had the product ready to launch, but the timing was not right because it was 2000 right after the market had collapsed and venture capitalists were not inclined to invest in any new companies. So I decided either I give it up or I just take it to market and try it out. And, and since I'd spent so much time, I said, okay, let's just do it. Mm -hmm. And I launched, I, I had some money and I ended up borrowing money from a lot of people, mostly family no VCs were interested. We launched in January 2001. And in hindsight, it was the worst time to launch a company. I, I had never managed anyone before. I had just been a software developer. So we hired people. We made lots of mistakes. And within three months, I had to let go of people. So I was learning very quickly. Wow. I never thought I would run the company. I always thought I'd come up with the idea. I get some VCs involved. They would bring in professional leadership. And then hopefully it would take off from there. But VCs were not interested. And so I was forced to run it and, and had to go through this experience, hiring, letting go of people, and then realizing that the initial product was not succeeding in the marketplace and we had to pivot. And it took us quite some time, almost till the end of that year before we finally broke even. And then from there, it just took off. I've been through a lot of ups and downs through the 20 years. Yeah. And, and so one of them was this initial stage, barely survived. And, and then another one was the great financial crisis when we lost a whole bunch of clients. 
And then you'd ask me, what crisis have you gone through recently? And these are all existential crises. Will our company survive? It sounded like it was very bumpy starting the company early on. But now that you're where you are today, I'm, I'm curious if you feel like there were some big advantages to not getting funding and not handing over leadership. I also want to ask you about becoming a leader, going from, I, I love ideas, I love building things, I'm a software person, to, oh my gosh, I'm leading this huge company and I'm leading people. So love to, to address both of those. Yeah. So I'll start with the second question. I had never managed anyone. In fact, I was afraid to talk to a group of people that was more than five. And so everything I learned about running a company, I had to learn on the job. And yeah. I've realized that often the hurdles you personally have, just things in your own mind. I was quite insecure when you talk to VC, they're like, oh, who's managing this? And do you have professional management? And <laughs> and of course, I, you know, I had no management experience. I hadn't gone to business school. I, I just <laughs> felt insecure about my own abilities. And I, I think over time, what I realized is uh, I actually have the right instincts <laughs> and the right intuition about how to treat people and how to build a company. And I've just gotten much more confident in my own abilities and trusting my own instincts. And oftentimes we'd hire people from other companies and they had different experiences and they'd make decisions in a way that I, I felt were just, just not right. That's not right how we treat people when they're leaving or how we treat people inside the company. And over time, those have become an advantage. I always thought there was this path. You, get, you bring in VCs, or you bring in private equity and you go public and, and this is the path. This is how all companies go. And right. early on, we couldn't get VCs at all. And then three, four years after we were in business, there were some VCs that discovered that there were some companies that really did well during the downturn. And they discovered we were one of those companies and we were just uh, growing rapidly and very profitable and we had this very small team. And fortunately for me, one of the first VCs I talked to, they put a term sheet right in front of me uh, in that meeting. Okay. And uh, I felt like this was very constraining. I was like, we have a pretty strong business here and yeah. these guys are trying to control it. I, I think the instinct was, oh, uh, here's a founder who's quite successful, uh, quite naive about the, the world of investing and we can take advantage. And so it, it made me cautious and worry and we didn't do anything then. And then Later on, we were trying to raise capital. This was right before the financial crisis. We started talking to private equity. I didn't see the financial crisis coming, but I think the private equity companies did. And they changed the terms right at the last minute. And so I, I said, I'm not ready to do this. I would have lost the company once the financial crisis happened. Our business was impacted badly. I would have completely lost the company. And then we tried to eventually in 2011-12, tried to go public. We filed to go public and then pulled out because our growth had slowed down and it wasn't fast enough compared to the other companies in the market. And so we did try. And then eventually I came around to, there are a lot of advantages to being private. We used to have a professional board. We spent a lot of time on those board meetings, almost a week, every quarter in preparation. We don't have any of that. Usually I was spending a lot of time explaining. And sometimes that, that work is good. It's good to articulate where you're going, but I'm thinking about strategy all the time. There's big advantage to, to not being out in the market and not having these kind of short-term goals. I, I think there's another advantage that we have. Most companies, they have different constituents, right? There's the customers, 
there's the employees mm-hmm. and then there's the investors and it is the investors who are the owners of the company and so often the management team is trying to address how do we align uh, with the investors and if it's a public company they're quite fickle all they care about is profits right we want to see growth and profits growth and revenues or potential for profits in the future and if it's a vc company it's similar they put capital into it and they want to return on that capital the company i worked for before i had stock options the company went public and they were worth uh, quite a bit of course held on to them didn't sell them and, uh, mm-hmm. then, and and so i rode that thing all the way up and down and uh, didn't uh, really capitalize on it at all but when it was at its peak i was worth wow. several million dollars it was a really good experience for me because i, I thought oh you know what am i going to do with this and i realized like all the things i love doing i already do i didn't really need <laughs> the money and so that I think it's actually good not to be looking as money as the objective. And so this helps me in all decisions. I'm never money focused. Even for the business, it's okay. How do we do the right thing? And I think because we're private, we can often make those kind of decisions. So it's not always about, oh, let's squeeze the most uh, profit. Let's make the most uh, money. It's really how to have the right relationships. What are we building here for the long term? And I, it's important. I, I don't see this often with uh, companies that are public or companies that are VC-backed. Often that money focus or profit focus is one of the main drivers. And it makes mm-hmm. it hard for them to think differently. You talked about not having a lot of confidence at the beginning. It seems like those lessons along the way gave you the confidence to trust yourself and trust your instincts. And that carried you through all these ups and downs and all these potential other paths that you could have taken. It sounds like you continue to come back to what's important. How am I going to have the most flexibility so that you can continue to trust your instincts? Yeah, that's right. I think it's actually good being in this role for such a long time. I have seen us go through many ups and downs, uh, particularly the first stage, the financial crisis. Recently, we've had some challenges before this pandemic, and then the pandemic has been a challenge. And I reacted differently for each of those challenges. But I would learn, I'm always learning, okay, how should we have done this differently? And what I've learned is that when we have uh, challenging times, it's a good opportunity. We question everything. In fact, not only do I question everything, everyone in the organization questions everything. Everyone in the organization is is willing to change. Mm. When we do well, we've been growing like a rocket and very profitable. Sometimes you feel like, oh, I'm responsible for this. Or I'm making the <laughs> right decisions. And I think that's all false. Wow. It's really important when you're successful to be aware that a lot of it has to do with luck timing in the marketplace, a lot of things coming together and to be grateful for those, but also be aware that you're not looking as hard at the challenges that lay underneath. It's like the water recedes and you're all naked and you're like, oh, wow, we have lots of problems. And that's when you actually adapt. So going through those uh, ups and downs, I think really helped me. And but we have challenges like recently with the pandemic, uh, I, I think I'm in a better position to respond and respond in a way that often it goes against what your first inclination is. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to Transformative Leadership Conversations, and I'm your host, Winnie Da Silva. Let's get back now to our conversation with Dilip Da Silva, the founder and CEO of Exponential Interactive. You've had a lot of business challenges. When you think about the most difficult leadership challenge you faced recently, what's the one challenge that stands out for you? 
I think the pandemic's a good example. Our business is based on advertising for Fortune 500 com- companies. The first thing everybody realizes, like, oh, business is different. Business has stopped, and mm-hmm. they wanted to cut costs. And when they cut costs, the first thing to be cut is advertising. And so our revenues dropped. They just have dropped off a cliff in April. They were about 30% of what they would have been. We don't have huge margins and we don't have a lot of cash in the bank. This was a situation where, okay, are we going to survive this? And so we, of course, started uh, cutting costs wherever we could. But our biggest cost is people. Most companies either cut employees or furloughed employees, but it didn't feel like it was the right time to let go of people. This is a very stressful time for them. and. Yeah. It's going to be very questionable whether they would even be able to find a job. And so we decided maybe we can reduce people's salaries. And and so the question came up, how are we going to go about doing this? I know some other companies, they will say, oh, okay, all executives are required to reduce it by this amount. We're a global company. We have a little under 500 people. If you look at different countries, there are different laws about what you can do. In some countries, you can just reduce their salaries and others you have to ask for their consent. And so yeah. we decided that's not right. We can't force some people to do a reduction and then to ask others to volunteer. So we decided to ask everyone to volunteer. People on, uh, on our team were asking, what happens if people just decide not to volunteer? Or they don't volunteer enough. And I felt we need to ask them in the right way and we need to trust them and hope that they step up. And so we did. We asked everyone in the company. I told them, on average, we need people to volunteer at least 20% of their compensation. And so what happened was, in the end, 92% of the company uh, wow. volunteered. And some people reduced their salary by 5%, others all the way up to 50%. And the wow. average was 20 to 23%. We, so even you know, higher and, than you would have anticipated. That's right. And I was the first one. I, I reduced mine by uh, all of it. But, uh, but it's amazing that people reduced it by so much. Everyone felt like, we wanted to ensure that nobody had to be let go in this time. And so we all had to make a sacrifice. Q2 was very tough. And then Q3, we started to recover a little bit. Because we asked people to reduce their salaries, I felt like we can't do anything else because it would be unfair right. to try to hire people or invest in any partnerships or do anything while we are asking people to take a pay cut. And so- That's right. Uh, so at the beginning of September, we restored everyone's salaries. Wow. Uh, and, and then at the beginning of October, we gave people that deserved raises because we had skipped the appraisal cycle. There was a lot of change in the company during this time. What I said before is when you will go through hard times, everybody questions everything and everybody's open to change. And so we've completely changed and pivoted our company and adapted. And I felt we're moving in a direction where, where we will be successful in the future. And we will survive. And then I felt at some point, we're going to have to pay people back. And I thought, okay, even if we've restored it, but we will have to also pay them uh, you know, interest on it. And so we decided to do that and, and do it in a way to recognize that people sacrifice different levels. So some people gave you know, 10%, other people gave 30%, and people would get a different interest rate. So wow. if you gave uh, 30%, the interest rate was 15%. And people are very grateful because they didn't uh, expect this. Right. I'm very grateful that they all decided to help each other out. And I think in the end, it helps us build a stronger company. Now, I think we were funded by outside investors 
that would be a tough decision. But if you look at it long term, it's actually a good thing to do. People will be more appreciative and it will just help us build a stronger company. And it's just not a job. People need to feel like uh, the other people in the company are there uh, and will help them in a time of need. Well, how did you ask? When you asked people, what did you say? It, it couldn't be live for this one because I needed everybody to see it. So I recorded it. Uh, okay. And I want them to see my face when I'm talking. One very fortunate thing for us was that I was traveling in the beginning of the year and I saw this pandemic coming. So I knew at the end of January that this is not looking good. I sent an email to everybody in the company uh, at the end of February saying, hey, this is coming. And one of the things I let them know is that this is going to impact our business and yeah. we need to be aware of it. And so, and I think a lot of employees were, were at that time what is this? Right. <laughs> this is right. Here. We don't see it, but of course, it, eventually it did, and it's a massive thing. It really helps to be transparent with people and let them know how we see things. And, and so we, we had to do this in April, but people were already prepared. They saw the revenues going down. They were supportive of, uh, of the decision. I, I said, this is going to be a tough time. This is going to be a tough time for everyone's community. We really need to look out for each other. It was that kind of appeal to everyone. I'm grateful everyone saw it that way. I'm grateful they participated and stepped up. I think it says a lot about you for them to trust you on something as big as this. You were building trust with people along the way. Yeah, I think other leaders are realizing the way we interact with employees needs to change. Uh, they're saying they need to have more empathy. But I think a lot of people are very suspicious of any company. I think we, you do need to be very transparent in the company. Before the pandemic, I wanted to share more frequently, but it would take time. And we do it maybe once a quarter, once every six months. And, and then with the pandemic, we, we now have video meetings weekly, which has been one wow. of the great benefits. I think when there's transparency, people know what's going on. And ideally, they're focused on their job and they're focused on executing rather than filling the vacuum with stuff yes. they're not hearing. Is there anything that you feel like changed for you as a leader or that you really learned this go around with the pandemic as a leader? Every time we've had a, a crisis, usually we initially react in a way that's a typical instinct, which is let's do a layoff. We cut costs and we go into a certain mode of operation and then things start to turn around for us. And then I, when I look back at that, I'm, I'm always feel like, oh, we should have uh, taken advantage of it and we should have invested more in everything. The other part of challenging times is I feel everybody is open to change. And this time we've invested, we've taken advantage of the situation to change the organization. If you had talked to anyone before the pandemic, they would have said, oh, it's not possible to work remotely. But now all managers, all teams, they're like, okay, it's possible to do it. <laughs> and so that's one change. But there's lots of other changes in our business where people are much more open and receptive. You need to take advantage of it because eventually it'll go back to the way it was when things are challenging. People are open to change. When you're having success, the organization are not so open to change. They feel like, look, I'm being successful. Yeah. Uh, let, let me keep yeah. doing it this way. And yeah. you have to realize how to take advantage of them. To me, it's always, what's the opportunity when you're having a challenging time? And what's the opportunity when you have a success? But there's always a positive. You're always like, taking advantage of it. Things are always changing externally. The market's changing. Your you know, competitors are changing. So internally, you need to be very flexible. What you want from anyone in the company is for them to 
take a broader view. And the way you get that is by having them do multiple roles. And so they see the okay. bigger picture, yeah. including managers so that they can you know, empathize with the other teams or the other roles, but they can just see the picture and connect the dots. This is one thing we push quite hard. What's an example of you becoming more flexible as a leader? When I started the company, I did a lot of roles. And, and I believe very much that uh, everyone should be hands-on. And okay. I'm still very yeah. hands-on. In fact, yeah. I still develop software. I've been involved in many functions in the company. And there's a reason for that. I feel when I get my hands dirty, the only way really to see what's going on is to get your hands dirty. It's not to actually do that job. It's actually inform strategy. Where's the opportunity? Where the problem? And I think that's the case with managers, individual contributors. They all need to get their hands dirty at some level so that they can then see the picture, they can have impact, they can empathize with the people working in that role. But I've not been fully doing that in every role. And I, it's surprising. We've been in business 20 years and only a few years ago, I started to talk to clients. I wish I had learned that a lot earlier and that informed our product. That was actually an eye opener for me. I realized, like, wow, we really need to align uh, better with the brands that advertise with us. And it's transformed our product. But during the pandemic, the thing that changed is in the past, it would take you know a lot of effort to meet with clients. It'd be a three-day ordeal. And with the pandemic, uh, everyone's stuck at home. And so there was an opportunity to have these meetings over Zoom. This year, I've had 50 meetings since June. And wow. uh, it has transformed my thinking, it's great for me to be talking to clients and learning their challenges and then uh, understanding, okay, how do we change our product? So it really helps them address their challenges. And often people are just focused on one area and it's very hard for them to connect the dots. And I think that's, a, that's an important competitive advantage. In most leadership circles, whether that's coaching and, and training or even business school, it's move into your next role. And yet you continue to do software, which is something that you love. But what you're saying is the reason why you're getting your hands dirty is not because, oh, I'm afraid to give it up or I want to hang on to what I know I'm good at, but it's because it informs strategy that gives us different insight. It helps us connect the dots. So I think that's an important distinction a lot of people don't talk about. No, that's right. There are some areas I did not like. I didn't like management. I didn't yeah. like dealing with operations. What I have found is that every time I avoid embracing uh, whatever that function is, we suffer. And yeah. I've realized I need to fully embrace every situation, whether it's how do we build a great organization? How do we have great managers? How do we have great product? How do we talk to clients? I need to just fully embrace it. When we brought in outside managers or I talked to outside professionals, it was similar. Like, oh, you shouldn't be doing this. You yeah. should, should step away from it. That's and right. I have the total opposite view. Uh, it, I, I think all managers, all individuals should be uh, hands-on and even management should just be a role. So we've had situations where somebody says, oh, I'm an individual contributor and then I go into management and then they don't like it. And yeah, now they're stuck. Right. And so then yeah. they leave the company and I'm like, no, this is not a good situation for us. So we, what we should allow is for them to try management and the people who are good in whatever role they are, continue doing that. You want also people to try things out and not feel like, oh, I'm stuck now. You need to be flexible and people need to be open about this and they need to be willing to let people try different roles. And, and I think everybody benefits, then they can grow within the company. And then we are just more flexible to deal with the all kinds of challenges that uh, are inflicted on us from the external environment. <laughs>
Because then you're not trying to fit people into boxes. If you've got good talent, then the argument is that they can contribute value. So where can they do that? That's right. So what sustains you? Looking back over your life and your career, what are a couple of learning moments or lessons or stories, things that have continued to help you in these pivots, in these times uh, of difficulty you've encountered over the last 20 years? I think one is just, I, I just don't give up. I, I think I have a lot of endurance for pain. And I think we did have investors many times in the company's history. They'd say, okay, just throw in your cards. We'll try again another time. And I never viewed it that way. I always, okay, we will need to change uh, who we are, change our product and just keep on fighting. I think that's an important part of uh, succeeding. I, I'm also very quick at making decisions. If they were, you were playing a chess game, and you can spend all the time analyzing, okay, what should the next move be? If you end up spending a little time and you were going to make the same move anyway, all that extra time was wasted. So I have no issue making decisions with limited information. And then I'm able to take risks. I don't have any problem taking risks. Being fearless about taking risks is a good thing. And then the other one is being self-aware. You have to be quite aware of your weaknesses are and always look internally uh, at, okay, what's, what are your own issues? What are the issues with the company? Because a, a lot of times you're selling internally, you're selling externally, and you can't mm -hmm. be uh, drinking that same Kool-Aid. You have to be quite aware of, uh, okay, yeah. where do we really stand? Things that have really helped me uh, is uh, in my 20s, I, I did a lot of exploration and travel around the world. Uh, and one of the things I learned in that process was meditation. I, I learned very early on that meditation is something that makes me much more productive. And if I don't meditate, I, I, actually the difference is 3x. It's easy wow. to get distracted. About six, seven years ago, I meditate uh, daily. Uh, and the way I look at it, it's interesting. For instance, I brush my teeth every day. You don't want to go out there with bad breath. It's going to reflect badly on you. To me, meditation is just like that for your mind. Especially as a leader, you don't want to walk out there and then you respond uh, poorly. I can't say I always respond in the best way, but when I meditate, at least I minimize the times where I respond poorly. And I think it's super important to do that so you're balanced because there's lots of things pulling you in different directions and you need to maintain that balance and you need to be think clearly and carefully with everything you do and how you talk to people. To me, it's just like brushing your teeth. You meditate, mm -hmm. it gives you balance, it uh, helps you with uh, responding. You were introduced to meditation in your 20s, and then there was a gap. And then over the last six or seven years now, it's like brushing your teeth. What caused you to just make it that habit? I was struggling uh, in my 30s and 40s. I worked very hard, and it felt like I was busy. And yeah. uh, I always knew in that meditation, I should be doing that. But I wouldn't always do that. I became aware that I really need to control where I spend my time. Early on, uh, I was very enthusiastic about the internet. But now looking back 20 years, it feels like we've gone off the rails. It's technology is part yeah. of the problem of all the problems we see. One thing I, I tell my kids is the, your most valuable asset is your attention, your ability mm. to focus your attention and focus it on something for hours. I think what's happened with technology, especially the phone and news mm -hmm. and social media, mm -hmm. is that uh, people just can't focus and they pick up their phone a couple of hundred times a day. They spend many hours on their, you know, their screen. We're losing a lot of the potential of humanity 
because they're wasting their time on consuming stuff and the attention is always interrupted. And I worry about that for myself. How do I spend my time productively producing stuff and not consuming stuff? And I worry about it for my kids. I also want to make sure that people in our company are also productive and not distracted by just consuming stuff. And I think it, it applies to the whole society. Meditation helps with not letting you get distracted. If you don't have good attention and can focus, so easy to read an email, click on a link, and suddenly you've wasted 30 <laughs> minutes of your time. With meditation, a couple of benefits you've seen, being able to be more intentional about your response to people around you, you're more intentional about how you spend your time. And this ability to focus for long periods of time, that's a differentiator, but you're tying that to meditation. When I've gone through a lot of experiences and at different times I would hit hurdles and I would get executive coaches to help me out. Mm-hmm. And it was usually because I was uh, running with my like a chicken with its head cut off and I was too busy yeah. and I couldn't really reflect and think. And eventually I realized the coaches, what they were doing was just helping me see what was going on. And yeah. they, they didn't have the answers. In the end, they were helping me see the answers myself. And the only reason I couldn't see the answers myself is because I was so busy and I couldn't, I wasn't stopping. I realized this is the one of the most important things, right? As the leader, the company is supposed to see where we are going and we are going in the right direction and we are building the right kind of organization. And so I need to spend time thinking and reflecting. I didn't do this in my 30s and 40s. And I do this now. Every day I spend a lot of time thinking. Like The first mm-hmm. thing in the morning I spend, sometimes it's half an hour, sometimes it's two hours. And I'm always like, okay, where are we going What's happening, you know, in in the world? I think the most important thing the leader should be doing is thinking. It's not the running around doing stuff. Uh, and so I do that daily. I'm not sure other leaders spend enough time doing that. I could not agree more. And I'm sure that reflection and thinking time spans from yourself as a leader to what's going on in the world, what's happening in our company. It's hard because there's so much pressure to be doing stuff and to be productive and to get things off your to-do list. And thinking doesn't hit any of those. (laughs) So I think that's why people shy away from it. Yeah, no, that's right. I think what you described is also true. Emails come in and you have this task list and you get all this stuff done. And one thing I've gotten quite good at is ignoring stuff. And you know, you realize, okay, I can only do so much. What is the most important thing I need to do? And then you focus on doing that. And and you can only do one thing at a time. You have to be able to spend uninterrupted time on stuff. And so you have to be okay with not being able to catch up with stuff. I'm actually much more uh, careful about not letting those things interrupt me. I'd like to pivot a little bit. How has your experience being an immigrant, a person of color in leadership, how has that prepared you or influenced your ability to lead or or the decisions you make or, or how you lead? So I've never seen it as a disadvantage. I've had a pretty good childhood. My dad was a doctor. I've had lots available to me, lots of advantages. I immigrated to this country when I was 13. Eventually we went to a good uh, private high school. I went to an Ivy League college. And now I did a master's at that same college. And so I've had lots of advantages. It's not about whether you're a person of color. I I think it really, do you have the support structure to take risks? I always felt like I could take a risk. And if I failed, there was somebody, I would not go hungry. And I think that's what's needed for people to take risks. And there's lots of people who just don't have the income to take risks. And I've really been privileged. 
when I immigrated here, we, we didn't live in a big city in India. We were somewhat remote. And when I came to the U.S., I did have a very strong inferiority complex. I barely interacted with Westerners uh, yeah. when I lived there. And so this was like a shock coming here. Although we spoke English at home, but I wasn't good at English, even though it was the only language I spoke. And so I came here, I felt inferior. One of the advantages of going to Brown and the biggest benefit of going to like a top university was uh, it got, I got over my inferiority <laughs> complex. I felt, I felt like actually I'm as good as all these guys. But that was very important for me as I was starting this company. I just felt I'm equivalent to everybody else. I'm not at some disadvantage. It goes back to what I originally said. A lot of the hurdles you have in life or the blocks there, you put them there yourself. So this was one of those examples where it was just an inferiority complex. It was the same thing when I started the company. I was insecure about my abilities to manage. It's the same thing. It was just in my head. Given all that you have talked about in your experience in growing this one company, what advice would you give to someone who wants to be an entrepreneur, who wants to start a business? I got thrown into it. Yeah. I didn't know what I was getting into. And... I think there's much, much more involved than what I had thought. If you're an entrepreneur and you have the desire to do it, you should just do it. You learn from it. But it's just a lot of work. You have to be really committed. You have to put in a ton of time. It takes a toll on your family. I wonder if I would do it again. Uh, mm -hmm. Even though I've come to love it and I love the, the company and I love all the challenges, uh, it is very hard to start from scratch. I think the reason people do actually start companies is because they're not fully aware of all these challenges. I think that's they right. Will, they would be <laughs> reluctant to start it. Dilip, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I really thank you for being transparent and honest uh, about your leadership journey. And I would love to have you back again and hear some more updates on you and, and how the company's going. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transformative Leadership Conversations with me, your host, Winnie Da Silva. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dilip Da Silva, the founder and CEO of Exponential Interactive. To learn more about my work in executive coaching, leadership development, and team effectiveness, check out my website at www.winniedasilva.com or you can email me at winnie at winifred.org. I'd also love to connect with you on LinkedIn. Reach out and tell me what was helpful about today's episode, or tell me about any other suggestions you have for my show. I look forward to sharing another transformative conversation with you next week.